are listening to The Depression Session at 99.1 FM Downtown Radio. Each week, we'll have a new guest tell the story of their depression. I'm your host, Laura Milkins, and thank you for joining us on The Depression Session. Just a note for my listeners, I want to make sure you understand that this is a show about depression, and some of the content can be triggering, so please take care of yourself if something on the show brings up difficult feelings, and seek professional help if you need it. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Depression Session on Downtown Radio. Today we have with us in the studio Serena Freewoman. Serena is a riot girl and blogger who loves coffee, the 49ers, chocolate, and donuts. We'll be right back with Serena, but first let's talk about money. I have not talked about money on this show yet, and it is, I think, a big determining factor in everybody's life. I actually love listening to the podcast Death, Sex, and Money because I think it's very interesting to hear people talk about money. On the other hand, I'm not interested about money in my own life. It isn't something that resonates a whole bunch with me. I like to not think about it or worry about it. That being said, I've been thinking about it a whole bunch because I have a rental property. I bought a townhouse when I moved here as a graduate student, and I was one of those people they shouldn't have given money to. They gave me a no income, no asset loan. I didn't have to prove that I was at all capable of sustaining this loan, which is what they were doing at the time. And it all worked out fine, but I have this place I can't sell that's really underwater that um, I rent out. And I never wanted to be a landlord either. And having had many roommates, I know it just is full of like pitfalls and things like that. I've learned like don't rent to your friends. Get some stranger who seems like a reasonable human being and will pay their bills. And I've got somebody new moving in and the air conditioner breaks. And the air conditioner is ancient so it needed to be replaced. The first quote I got was for $10,000. And I said, I will let it foreclose before I'll pay $10,000. That's insane. I got a bunch of other quotes and got a, one that was a third of that. And I thought, okay, let's just get, get it fixed. And eventually I'll get the money back for that. But it's anxiety producing. Uh, it makes me angry actually to even think about money things. I feel dumb and I like things to just be neat and clean and to never have to think about it. And I feel kind of getting stuck with a place, which I mean, that that is a first world problem by far. That is nothing to be, you know, it's just like with depression. It's like, well, how could I be upset about this? Like, I'm such a privileged person. Like, how could I be depressed? My life is great. Money kind of falls in that category where it's literally, I just don't want to have to ever do anything with this. And it it means I've thought over all of the different things in the past years with this property that made me unhappy, like having a roommate who didn't pay and just having to say, you can't live here if you don't pay me money and having things break and not having the money for it. Right now, I actually am okay financially and I'm able to do it. But it brings up all this old crap that makes me remember the times when I didn't have it and I felt stuck. You just feel stuck. Just having to spend money on something that, I mean, it's always a dead even with the apartment. It's like spending money that I will maybe kind of recoup over the next three years. Like, it's just like, just seems, I don't know. I don't know why it's so hard to think about money. I think because I've 
struggled so many of the years of my life making around ten to fifteen thousand dollars a year and just just above the poverty line, enough to not qualify for access, no health care, and then trying to also just have fun and not worry about things. And I'm not in that position anymore, but for some reason mentally I'm stuck there. So I know you all have money problems too, and I'm sure for those of you who have some serious money problems, this sounds very pretentious or something to be, oh, I got this apartment I rent out and it makes my life miserable. No, it's a good thing. I'm lucky. It's not worth anything. It's worth minus $10,000 and I'm not going to put more money into it, but it is something that I own. It's in my name. Oh, in the summer too, as a teacher, you don't make money. That's the other thing. So it's always a like pins and needles of like, hey, I got to make it through the summer. What do I need to budget for this? And I'm a pretty good budgeter. But I just want to let you all know that if you're having money problems or if money makes you anxious or makes you depressed, you're in good company and much love, Laura. Today we have with us in the studio, Serena Freewoman. Serena is a riot girl and blogger who loves coffee, the 49ers, chocolate, and donuts. Hello, Serena. Welcome to the Depression Session. Hi, Laura. Thanks for the invitation to chat. Thank you so much for being on the show. So tell us what's new with you. Tell us about your blog or whatever you want to share. Well, yesterday I wore myself out making blankets for a group called Project Linus Tucson. We make blankets for kids who are in the hospital or who are being removed from abusive households. Um, whether it's crochet, sewing, knitting, that has actually been a really good outlet for me in terms of my depression because it allows me to focus on something positive instead of, you know, wanting to stay under a blanket myself. My depression issues started uh, as a child. And um, definitely by the time I got to high school, I was anorexic because I didn't fit the standard model of beauty. And then that morphed into emotional eating. So then I gained a lot of weight in high school. And a lot of that was because I felt like I wasn't worthy of being seen. I tried to blend into the background. Then I found the debate team in high school. And that helped me find my voice. So even though I was still struggling with feelings of worthiness, I could take out my anger in the debate rounds and focus on, you know, world politics and the fact that I was a woman from a rural community that was very heavily Christian dominated. And I was allowed to have an opinion and speak my voice that gave me a really positive outlet, and it was okay to be smart. It was okay that I didn't fit typical standard of what a woman was supposed to be like. In high school, I was also struggling with whether or not I was a lesbian, and, you know, again, coming from a very conservative Christian background, that was not acceptable, and there were lots of times that I just felt very unworthy of God's love. When I got to college, I originally went to BYU, and I was only there for a semester because I don't know if you remember Matthew Shepard, who was, he was assassinated because he was gay and he lived in Wyoming, and uh, that happened my first semester of college, and I realized that this is not where I needed to be because 
I can't change the fact that I'm a lesbian. In fact, I, at this point in life, I consider myself a dyke because it's much more of a militant term. And so I left. And when I went back to Arizona, I went to, to ASU and I'm a sun devil through and through. And I joined the debate team and again started dealing with women aren't supposed to have opinions, but at the same time, I felt like it gave me an outlet for not having to focus on being depressed about being gay and not being accepted by my birth family. And that's when I found my chosen family. And for those of us in the queer community, having queer brothers and sisters is life-saving. I'm not depressed about being a lesbian anymore because that's just who I am. Unfortunately, my family has come around to that. And a big part of that was when I was diagnosed with brain cancer. We had been working on mending fences, but once I got my diagnosis of brain cancer, suddenly everything else kind of fell to the wayside. And so I go back and forth. My tumor is inoperable because it's located in the cerebral cortex, which controls speech, reading comprehension, and secondary memory. And losing my ability to speak and have a a conversation with people was way harder for me than the idea of losing my hair during radiation and chemo. Because being a riot girl... I already shaved my head. That was actually a form of defiance against gender norms Mm -hmm. when I was both in high school and in college. So that wasn't a problem for me. But not being able to remember my own name is when it really made a huge impact on my self-esteem. I can't drive anymore because I have seizures. And so again, feeling like a loss of being strong, smart, and independent and being able to go where I want, when I want. Cancer has definitely helped me learn humility and having to ask and accept help. I'm really grateful for being able to volunteer in the community because it helps me focus on something positive. When I first started volunteering with Project Linus, I didn't know how to sew, but my friend recruited me and she said, just come meet the other people in our group and I think you'll like it. So I started doing what's called no-sew blankets where you just trim strips into fleece, tie knots, and ta-da, you have a blanket. And now I'm actually sewing and I've been active with Project Linus for five years Another thing that really helped me get over my depression was going to speech therapy because being able to regain my voice, being able to read like a bookworm. I mean, I I don't read a book a day or a book a week anymore, and I'm not as active with my blogging or my writing, but it's okay. I don't have to write two, three articles a day anymore. I, um, I'm happy where I am in terms of my reading and my writing. One of the things that triggers depression for me is the fact that I can't have kids. When I first started going through chemotherapy um, and radiation, I was going to be on oral chemo that's called Temadar, and uh, that's a 13-month cycle. And the radiation shrunk my tumor my my tumor was six centimeters when I was first diagnosed, and it shrunk it down to five and a half, and that's where it's always going to be. 
But as I was, because I'd been stable the whole time I was on Temidar, I had started talking to my oncologist about whether or not I could get pregnant. And she said that, you know, I should just start taking prenatal vitamins because, you know, you can get pregnant. You can start trying about six months after to make sure that all of the toxins are out of your body. But she encouraged me to just start taking the medicine in a way to prepare. And my partner and I had been talking about it for quite a while. And I I already had somebody picked out to be my sperm donor. We came out together and I consider him my soulmate as much as I do my partner. And then a month after I got off of chemo, I had an MRI and a secondary tumor showed up. And so I was heartbroken because that meant that I was going to have to go back on to chemo. And there was no end in sight in terms of how long am I going to be on chemo? Am I ever going to get off of chemo? Am I ever going to be able to have kids? So I was on uh, IV chemo for two years. And we, because my tumor was stable, we started weaning off. And then two months after, another tumor popped up. And we had been talking about fostering to adopt. And I was so depressed about not being able to be a parent, not just because, you know, that's the standard definition of what a woman is supposed to be, but because I know my life is going to be short term, but I wanted to leave somebody behind for my partner so that they didn't feel alone. And that might be a weird reason to want to be a parent, but that was... That was my desire so that I wouldn't be leaving my partner behind. I felt like the universe didn't feel like I was worthy. And I still feel that way sometimes because, you know, most of my friends my age have more than one child. My family members, I love my nieces and nephew. I love spending time with them. And I guess I have to accept the fact that that's the best it's ever going to be for me. And for the most part, I'm okay with it. And the way that I am able to be okay with that is by serving other people, not just with Project Linus, but I volunteer at the Gathering Point Community Acupuncture and just being in that clinic two days a week helps me to get out of the house and I get to chat with people and the healing energy that is in there, even if you're not getting a treatment, just sitting in there, you, f- you can feel the positive energy. And so I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be there because I'm a people person and I love to talk to people. Just being able to get out of the house is really important. And as far as my last name goes, I started thinking about that um, when I was in high school, but I didn't actually change my name until I was out of college. Part of the reason that I wanted to change my name is because I was, I had the last name of my stepfather who sexually abused me, and I did not want to keep that name because I didn't belong to him. I never considered taking on the name of a man because that I don't belong to anyone. I belong to me. And so that's why my name is Free Woman, because I am in control of my own body. I'm in control of my own life. And yeah, I have a lot of challenges, but if anybody's responsible, it's me. I'm responsible. And when I got married to my partner, you know, when we first got married, it wasn't 
legal here in Arizona. So it didn't really matter if I had my own name or not. When it did become legal in October of 2015, people asked me if I was going to change my name. And I said, why would I change my name? My name is very specific. I am a free woman. I'm strong, I'm smart, and I'm independent. And yes, I love my partner. But to me, I don't belong to anybody. I don't belong to cancer either. I mean, I still struggle where there's times that I just want to stay in bed with a blanket over my head. But having obligations is one way for me to get out of bed. Sometimes I just wear my pajamas when I'm at home, and that's okay because I can still make blankets even if I'm in my pajamas. But that's the way that I've been able to deal with my depression. Serena, thank you so much for your story. And something I wanted to pull out of there was my mom and I have talked a lot about the best way to fight depression for both of us is to give, to find somebody who you can offer something to or find a cause that you can believe in. It does something really magical because it takes you outside of your own struggles. Absolutely. And, you know, when I go to the meetings for Project Linus or I go to any of our work days, Most of the women in our group are retirement age or older. And, you know, I've seen women who have their arms in casts and they're still crocheting away. So I figure if these women can do it, I can do it. And same thing when I'm at the clinic. We have people who come in because they're having emotional issues. And I don't pry or try to give anything but positive things. Like I tell people when I'm at the cancer center, I love your hat because, you know, so many people lose their hair and they're, they don't think that they're pretty anymore. And so I like to try to tell people, oh, I like your shirt. I like your purse to try to give them at least a little bit of positive energy every day because that helps me shift my focus from feeling boohoo about myself to trying to be positive for somebody else. I think it was Maya Angelou, and I can't remember the quote, but she talked about walking down the street and offering up smiles because you don't know who you saved them that day, that that meant everything to them. Well, and the great thing about Tucson is that our bus system is very reliable. And so because I'm a chatty person, I will talk to people and I've made really good friends of with people who ride the same bus route every day. Even just saying thank you to the bus driver, it may not seem like it's significant, but at least trying to spread positive energy because I truly believe that the energy we put out into the universe returns to us. So if I sit here and focus on how negative my experience with cancer is or motherhood, things like that, then I'm going to be stuck in that. But if I'm trying to put out positive energy, then that's going to be returned to me. I think that's very true. And and powerful. I had an experience years ago with, I was with my friend in Indonesia in in Ambon, which is half Christian, half Muslim. They have checkpoints, machine guns and stuff because there's there's issues. And we were in the Muslim part of town and she got a text from her partner, but she didn't tell me that we were eating at this little stand. She said, well, let's go. So I started to leave. And as we're walking down the street, somebody threw like a bun and hit her in the head. And for some reason, my reaction to that was a big smile and a laugh. And I looked up at the guy and gave a big smile. And he kind of shrugged his shoulders and smiled back. And that was that. Well, it turned out that a bomb had gone off a block or so away from us. Not one that you could hear, but enough to blow some things up. And that's why he was like, you should get out of there. Because things are tense. 
And somehow I feel that being ignorant of that moment and just smiling when somebody did something violent and he didn't hurt her. Mm-hmm. When a smile, if you heard her, but just a smile and a laugh and it diffused it completely. And there's a lot of power to being open and positive. And I remember somebody saying, I can't believe you're depressed. You're the happiest person I know. Well, you can be happy and you can be pleasant and you can be open and inviting and still be depressed. Exactly. Well, and the standard diagnosis for life expectancy with people with brain tumors is five to seven years. Because of the size of my tumor, they estimate that it started growing in high school. So I, that was already five to seven years ago, but I hit my five-year mark this February, and I'm done when I say that I'm done. My grandfather had two major heart attacks, and he still kept living until he decided that he was done. And so there are people in my support group at the cancer center who were diagnosed in the 80s diagnosed in the mid 90s and they're still kicking it so I feel again as a free woman I decide when I'm ready to go and I'm not gonna let anybody tell me what my timetable is because I still have love to provide and I still have love to receive something else I found really powerful in your story was you saying that you're not your cancer I'm not it's just like having a mole or you know having PCOS or any other healthcare issue. Yes, it's a part of you, but it's it's not what defines you. I have friends who have fibromyalgia. I have friends who have other healthcare issues that doesn't define who you are. Yes, it kind of sets some limits as far as what you can do in terms of I'm not supposed to rock climb or go rappelling, but you know, I was never going to do that anyway. I, <laughs> I can't go scuba diving. Oh, well, you know, I can still sit at the beach. So I'm not going to accept any limitations. Like, sure, there's guidelines. I don't need to be doing handstands. I wouldn't be doing them before I was diagnosed. <laughs> and I, I think that it's there's something powerful for depression as well as like I'm not my diagnosis. I've heard that before. There's something very powerful for her saying that these are the circumstances I'm in. Mm-hmm. These are things that I deal with and that sculpt my life and put it in a direction that might be different than somebody else's. But that who you are in your heart, your soul, your spirit, whatever you believe in is really who, what defines you. What did somebody call it? Your meat suit is not what is you. And there are people that, you know, say it's your brain and the chemicals and blah, blah, blah. But I tend to believe there's something a little bigger than that. And that um, whatever it is, it may be just a connectivity that we have as a human species. But that, that there is some spark inside of us that just deals with whatever those circumstances are. Well, and I think a lot of people also think that mental health or emotional health care, they think that it's a something that you'll just get over it, or it's your fault. And it's not. And sure, maybe I talk on a cell phone, and maybe that gave me brain cancer, but it, you know, or maybe I eat too much sugar, and that's why I have diabetes. The cause is not the issue. The fact is learning how to make accommodations for yourself. And so yeah, there's times that I do struggle to get out of bed in the morning. But at the end of the day, that's just as much of a healthcare issue as menopause or anything else. And people need to take that into consideration and not tell people to just get over it. 
Yeah. And then the the last thing I wanted to kind of touch on was choosing your own name Mm -hmm. and the circumstances behind that. You know, one out of four girls, one out of seven boys is has a sexual abuse of some sort in their childhood. And that's statistics that I find horrifying. Yeah. And saddening. And yet taking those circumstances and again making it something about owning who you are. I think you're someone you strike me as someone who owns who you are on all these different levels. Well, and I I'm so grateful for women's studies. I was a women's studies major at ASU. I claimed the term feminist uh, when I was in high school because Hillary Clinton stood before the UN Human Rights Commission and said, women's rights are human rights. And the light clicked on for me. And so a big part of changing my name is to claim myself and my identity and show that I don't have to follow anybody else's script. I get to write my own. Yeah. And as someone who has chosen not to have children, despite a lot of pressure that my perfectly good ovaries should be put to use, which I don't even know if they are. I haven't done them on a trust drive. You know, I've never tried to get pregnant. Maybe they never worked. Now I'm 45. Nobody asks. They just go, you know, (laughs) but there was a whole period of time where there was pressure for that Mm -hmm. and getting married. Right. And not just, just from like, if you're in a happy relationship, there's a lot of pressure that you should get married. And I have this feeling like it's none of the government's business. I mean, this is one area where I'm sort of libertarian, where I'm like, why do I need a license for this? Exactly. Why is this anybody's business? Well, yeah. (laughs) And I vowed that I wasn't going to get married and was very much a vigilant, staunch dyke with short hair. And it didn't matter whether or not it was legal for queers to get married or not. And, you know, like I used to say, well, if you're queer and you're trying to get married, then you're just assimilating into heterosexuality and you're defeating the whole movement for equality. But part of that changed when I was working at the Gay and Lesbian Center in Long Beach and I was running their LGBTQ youth after school program, which I just... I loved being able to be a role model for these youth that I understood where they were coming from. And I just wanted them to see that you can be all kinds of queer. And so the volunteers and the guest speakers that we brought in were the whole gamut of religions, ethnic backgrounds, what some were married, some weren't. Because whether you're queer, whether you're straight, whether you're whatever, we can define who we are and what our life is going to be like. All choices available to all people. Exactly. And that there would not be judgment on any of them. If you want to be a 1950s style housewife and that is your deepest desire and that's what you will enjoy in life, I struggle not to judge it, to be honest, but to say that's that should be as much a choice for anybody as anything else. Absolutely. And that my choices do not apply to everybody, but that there's nothing wrong with them either. The whole world of destigmatizing, like let's destigmatize depression. Okay, you have depression. It's not your fault. It's something you're struggling with and you find the tools that work for you. Yeah. Let's just like have it out on the table. When it comes to life choices, and there's a lot of them, there's tons of them, there's, we always, we're, we're stereotyping animals, we're judgmental animals, mm-hmm. and the people we judge hardest are ourselves. Yeah. Well, I think it applies to religion, too, because I identify as a Wiccan, and so that's why I talk about the universe. Mm-hmm. I think regardless of what you call your religious beliefs, whether you're a Muslim 
Buddhist, Christian, and within Christian, long list. hundred different things. Yeah, it Jewish. <laughs> it, it comes down to God or whatever you call God is love. And as long as we can love other people and primarily loving ourselves, I think that in the end is what it means. So love yourself and then see, you know, what you could do to love other people, which might be making blankets. Yeah. Well, it's so wonderful to have you on the depression session. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for inviting me, Laura. It was nice talking to you. I want to mention again that if you found some of the content of today's episode triggering, please seek professional help and call 911 if you feel like hurting yourself or others. I'm not a licensed therapist, and this show and the station are not endorsing any remedies or products. The purpose of this show is to destigmatize depression through storytelling. You can find a link to mental health services on downtownradio.org on the About KTDT page. To listen to the podcast, or if you're interested in being on the show, contact us at www.thedepressionsession.com. You've been listening to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio Tucson with music by Septahelix. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at the Depression Session Podcast. Thank you.